0: Good evening. Uh, I'm very pleased to welcome you to this Latrobe Asia webinar Asian Monarchies in the Modern Age. My name is Beck Strading, I'm the Executive Director of Latrobe Asia at Latrobe University. And I would like to uh, begin this event by acknowledging the elders of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, who are the traditional custodians of the land upon which Latrobe University sits. And I would also like to pay my respect to their people, both past and present. and and extend that respect to any Indigenous Australians who are watching this webinar this evening. La Trobe Asia is proud of our efforts to engage the public in thoughtful debate and to deepen our understanding and knowledge of the region in which we live. And it gives me great pleasure to host this online panel discussion on Professor Dennis Altman's excellent new book, God Save the Queen, The Strange Persistence of Monarchies, published by Scribe. Now, this is the first book to examine constitutional monarchies globally. And in this webinar, we will be discussing constitutional Traditional monarchies in Asia, uh, and I think Dennis and I agree on this that uh, this is a topic that doesn't tend to get the attention that it deserves. So I'm really delighted to be a part of this uh, this panel. But Before we begin, let me welcome our esteemed panel, beginning with Professor Dennis Altman. Dennis is a Vice-Chancellor's Fellow at La Trobe University and a Professorial Fellow at the Institute for Human Security and Social Change. Dennis is one of Australia's leading public intellectuals and writers, having first come to attention with his book Homosexual Oppression and Liberation in 1972. Dennis has been a visiting professor of Australian studies at Harvard University, was listed by the bulletin as one of the 100 most influential Australians ever, uh, is a member of the Order of Australia and formerly a board member of Oxfam Australia. Welcome, Dennis, and congratulations on the book.
1: Thanks, Beck. And, and can I say how lovely it is to be on a panel with three colleagues? <laughs> this is really a wonderful opportunity to uh, just to relive some of our times in the Martin building.
0: Indeed. and Yes, we are very privileged to be joined this evening by two leading academics in the La Trobe community. Uh, Professor Kaori Okano is Professor of Asian Studies and Japanese Studies in the School of Humanities and Social Sciences at La Trobe University. She researches uh, the sociology and anthropology of education and inequality, women and multiculturalism in Asia and is currently engaged in groundbreaking longitudinal research study on working class women supported by the Australian Research Council. Welcome, Kauri. And we are also joined by Dr. Wendy Mee, who is an adjunct senior research fellow in the Department of Social Inquiry at La Trobe University. Uh, Wendy has extensive experience in conducting multidisciplinary field research in and beyond Asia, focusing in particular on areas of religion, identity, mobility, gender, sovereignty, and citizenship. It's great to have you here, Wendy. Now, there will be an opportunity for audience Q&A in the last part of tonight's session, so please uh, feel free to put your questions in the Q&A box throughout the evening and I can pose them uh, to our panel uh, at the end of the uh, webinar. But, Dennis, I'm going to start my questions uh, directed to you. Uh, Again, congratulations. The book, it's a rollicking read. There's so many sort of interesting parts um, that you cover across the book about very diverse, diverse and different monarchies. But I have—I guess I have to start, I mean, I do remember uh, having a conversation with you a couple of years ago uh, and you told me that you were going to write this book on monarchies and I did wonder, why are you interested in <laughs> yes. constitutional monarchies?
1: Indeed. Look, this book really began with a conversation with, interestingly, a very left-wing British publisher. And we were musing on the fact that some of the countries we think of as the most progressive, such as the Scandinavian countries, are in fact constitutional monarchies. And I guess that led me to start thinking, as someone who is, in the Australian context, a Republican, whether we need to think more seriously and take monarchies more seriously, which led me in turn to... Going beyond what I knew, which was very European oriented, um, and looking at monarchy across the world. And so, you know, I'm particularly delighted that we're today talking about monarchies in our part of the world. And I'm not going to be asked any questions about what I think about Harry and Meghan.
0: That's right. I have no questions on my list about Harry and Meghan, so rest assured. Uh, But I did want to, you know, often we do think of uh, European monarchies, particularly in Australia, we think of uh, the British uh, monarchy and there is, you know, the book is God Save the Queen and there's a picture of Queen Elizabeth on, on the cover. But I wanted to ask you about how what's the nature of constitutional monarchies within Asia? How do they differ from European monarchies, but also how do they differ from each other?
1: And it's the last part that's interesting because I don't think there is any generalisation one can make about monarchies in contemporary Asia in the way that one can about the monarchies of Western Europe. And the monarchies of Western Europe are all essentially constitutional monarchies, very similar to the British model. And the British model has, of course, been very important in other parts of the world, including Asia. Um, it's most obvious, and I think Curry will say something about this later, in Japan, where the emperor has no political sway whatsoever, but even in a country like Thailand, which I think most of us would not regard as either democratic or a constitutional monarchy, there is still a claim that they are following the principles of constitutional monarchy, even though they would accept that there are certain variations that are possible in the Thai context. I didn't talk about, I don't talk in the book about the authoritarian, the remaining autocratic monarchies. So I know very little about Brunei. I say not very much about the remaining autocracies in the Persian Gulf, except to note that, Countries like Jordan are in some ways moving towards more like a constitutional monarchy. But I think that what's striking in our part of the world is the variety and indeed the political importance and the political importance of monarchy in countries like Thailand and Malaysia over the last few years has become quite marked.
0: I wanted to ask you about the political importance and I might get back to that a little bit later, but I did want to ask about the historical development (laughs) of monarchies in Asia. Um, To what extent has constitutional monarchy in Asia being shaped by European colonialism. I mean you mentioned the British as a a model but there's also other states uh, that have had potentially had influence. I mean Thailand was not subject to imperialism. Um, Japan's emperor remained in place in the post-World War II reconstruction period which was really uh, overseen by the US which is a republican state and then of course constitutional monarchy in Cambodia was re-established in 1993 during a period of international democratic state building led by the UN. So there seems to be these sort of external influences that might also uh, come into play in, in the historical development and might be able to explain some of that diversity.
1: Oh, absolutely. And and again, there are very different Itineraries in each country. Um, look, as a broad generalization, European colonial powers liked to work with existing feudal structures. And I think the best example is the British Raj in India, where there was a whole network of princely states, some of which were, in fact, you know, quite significant and the British Raj cooperated with them. It was only, in fact, after Indian independence that the power of the princes and the Rajas was cut back. Uh, In the same way, in Malaysia, the various sultans remained after the British left, uh, Malaysia now has this quite unique system, I think, whereby the kingship rotates every five years between one of the hereditary sultans of the Malay states. So if we go to the French influence in Indochina, it becomes extremely complicated, far more complicated than I can possibly summarise in a minute, so I won't even try. Um, but, of course, there was uh, there were royal families in all of the constituent states of French Indochina, and as you said, Beck, um, Cambodia was interesting because the monarchy was overthrown, the monarchy was restored, the current king of Cambodia is in fact no more, I think, than clearly a puppet of the Hun Sen regime.
0: Yeah, so getting on to the kind of the political importance, I mean, you begin with a hypothesis or a notion uh, that constitutional monarchy might be a bulwark against the worst sort of populist authoritarianism, Yet, probably say that in Southeast Asia in particular, the book um, details that monarchies are actively involved in contemporary political uncertainty. For example, uh, you talk about the royal coup of of 2020 in Malaysia uh, where the Prime Minister... Uh, was resigned uh, in a power play, asked to be recommissioned by the king and was refused, uh, and also in Thailand where the monarchy seems to exist beyond the constraints uh, that are normally placed on constitutional monarchies playing significant roles in the coups in twenty uh, in 2006 and in 2014, and the royal support for these coups would appear to suggest that they have a role in undermining democracy, and yet Thaksin was arguably a populist leader as well. So you've got yeah. these complexities around mass and elite politics.
1: Well, I'm just going to take those two countries, and I'm sure Wendy will have things to add about Malaysia. But um, the, the quote, coup, that, that's a quote from The Guardian. In fact, it's arguable that the, the, the king at that stage, when he refused to reappoint Dr. Mahathir, um, was behaving more constitutionally than Sir John Kerr did when he sacked Whitlam, So that's not, you know. um, And, in fact, over the last year, the mess in Malaysian politics has, I think, forced the king to play more of a political role, but a role that I think is quite consistent with the concepts of constitutional uh, government. Thailand is much more complicated. I mean, the previous king, who was there for a very long time, had a history both of supporting and opposing coups. There are moments when he supported democratic movements and there are moments, as you pointed out, Beck, in the case of Tuxin, when he sided with the military, um, essentially giving royal imprimatur to a coup. I think the great tragedy of Thailand is that the current king of Thailand um, is, for all sorts of reasons, I think quite unable to guide Thailand towards a greater degree of democracy. And I think we all have to be a little careful about what we say about the current Thai king, if any of us want again to visit Thailand. But I don't think there'd be many people who would argue he is a model of constitutional propriety of any sort.
0: Is there any kind of overarching lesson that we can take uh, around the relationship between... Uh, constitutional monarchy in Asia and their, the political importance or the political role that they have to play. So I, I guess what I'm asking is how do the constitutional monarchies affect the system of government in these states? Is it too, is, is it too diverse or do, do you see some patterns emerging in the region?
1: You know, many years ago I was talking with um, a Thai a Thai who would see himself as very far to the left, who argued that if you looked at the neighbouring states, it became much more possible to support the retaining monarchy in Thailand. That is, if you look at what's gone on in Myanmar, if you look at the lack of any sort of democratic rule in Laos and Cambodia and Vietnam, Thailand doesn't look that terrible In the same way, Malaysia might well at this stage for all its imperfections be one of the most democratic countries in Southeast Asia. So I would be very cautious. I mean, I don't think there is a single pattern. I think it is probably true that in all of the countries we're talking about, there is some sense of needing to adhere to the, the basic model of constitutional government, but In cases such as Thailand, clearly um, that's wordplay. It's it's not carried out. Um, I think one of the countries we haven't talked about at all is um, Bhutan, where the king did actually play quite a significant role in leading to a greater democratisation of of Bhutan. I think that, um, again, There is just no one answer or one pattern, which is precisely why we need, I think, to think much more than we do in Australia about the diversity of regimes um, in our part of the world.
0: Yeah, and I guess it's not overly surprising, given that there's so many different systems of government in, in ASEAN, that the constitu- that the nature of the monarchy would be similarly diverse. Uh, but I wanted to actually turn our attention to Japan and bring Kaori into the conversation. I mean, I find this a particularly fascinating uh, case. Japan's emperor Hirohito was maintained by the US, as I mentioned before, and the, occupa- uh, the occupation forces in the post-World War II reconstruction and was installed as a symbolic head of state by the constitution drawn up by the occupying forces. What has this history meant for the emperor's political role in Japan and the sort of the extent of the monarchy's political role and whether it's able to influence the nature of democracy in
2: Japan? Well um After the war, the emperor was transformed from the real head of the state with power. Although some academics argue that emperor didn't really have much power uh, since the army had a power, Uh, but the emperor's political power was guaranteed by the imperial constitution at the time. So the the emperor transformed from the real head of the state with power uh, to a symbolic figure He managed to avoid war criminal charges, as you said, although the Australian delegates insisted on the Emperor's crime at the Tokyo Tribunal. Um, By the way, the Tokyo Tribunal program is available in Netflix and some of the audience (laughs) may be interested (laughs) in watching that. But given this controversial situation, the Emperor at the time was acutely aware that his actions would be closely watched by people both in Japan and outside. And I think he acted with high level of cautions. I remember in those days that there are still people who were still insisting on the whole responsibility of the emperor. Mm. Um, I think he and two uh, successive post emperors were quite successful in performing the given role of being a symbol without any power they kept low profile lifestyles and didn't get into controversial debate while being involved in charity ceremonial activities as well as promoting peace by visiting for instance china korea uh, former colonies and former colonies of japan in the pacific islands I think the the people think the politicians come and go, but imperial line continues, giving a sense of continuity. So I would say that because of the controversial situation where uh, the emperor became a symbolic head of state, the emperor really uh, tried to promote the given status as much as he could in order to avoid a controversy. And I think the outcome has been quite successful in the sense that uh, people are quite indifferent, to say the least, to the, to to say the least, to the emperor. Um, Maybe a degree of respect is still there. uh, But I don't think there is the the similar level of fascination with the imperial family as we see in relation to the British royalty.
0: So Kari, given this indifference, I mean, how do we explain the endurance? Is it just because of a kind of sense of tradition that it continued, the imperial line continues, or is there another kind of explanation for why um, the monarchy persists in
2: Japan's case? Well, I guess there's certainly uh, the imperial line provides a sense of continuity. Uh, People expect simple things from imperial family. There are two things that people expect. One, their service, like charity, ceremonial roles, which the taxpayers pay for. The Japanese imperial family have very little asset. They live on the taxpayers' money because their their vast assets were confiscated by the occupation force and then became the government property. And the second thing is that the moral integrity uh, which earns the respect from people. So as long as uh, people get these two things, uh, they they somewhat remain indifferent.
1: Can I I make a comment? And it's actually um, something I, I, I wrote in the book. But I can remember being in Japan in the early 90s for an international AIDS conference, and the crown prince appeared on the stage, Mm. a Japanese person who was living with HIV. And that was an extraordinary event uh, in Japan. I mean, in a sense, it's a bit like Princess Diana's role Uh with AIDS in Great Britain. And it, I think, did have a hugely important symbolic meaning for a lot of people. And he was able, as the crown prince, to do something that no Japanese Prime Minister would have been willing to do.
0: Really interesting. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, Carrie, I I wanted to ask a more sort of general question of you around the the political, I guess, role of of monarchy in Asia more generally. I mean, do you have a view on whether monarchical systems have been conducive to democracy in Asia? And if they haven't, uh, do you have a sense of why not? Well,
2: the, the first question that came to my mind when reading Dennis's book was you know, because he, he talk, talks about the correlations between the monarch and uh, the extent of democracy, uh, not necessarily a causal relationship. And I, 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 the question that I had was, do we see a correlation between monarchical system and democracy in Asia in the same way as in Europe? Because there are only three Asian countries amongst those categorized as full democracies, there are 23 countries, in Economist Democracy Index 2020. Uh, they are Taiwan, Japan, and South Korea, with Japan being the only constitutional monarchy. I think that um, the colonialism that many Asian monarchical systems experience is likely to have some direct or indirect impact, as Dennis mentioned. Because often the colonial rulers controlled local people through monarchs, king, right, sultans. Um, that is to say that, that the monarchs were perhaps a part of the colonial administration, although there's different degrees about this, uh, through which monarchs often have maintained the privilege themselves. Um, you know, the Indonesia's indirect rule is a good example, and perhaps Wendy could. Elaborate on that on Indonesia.
0: Yeah, I wanted to to ask Wendy about this as well. I mean, it's so fascinating the diversity of Asian. Yeah, <laughs> and I wanted to to ask you, Wendy, about your views on the sort of the specificities of the social socio political context and the relationship between monarchies and, and politics.
1: Mm.
3: Yeah, look, I, just on that, that last point that Kauri made too, I think it is really important that we acknowledge the way in which colonial powers actually transformed existing monarchies. You know, I can look around at, say, the Malaysian sultans, and I don't think they look anything at all mm-hmm. like their pre colonial <laughs> forebears. Mm-hmm. You know, they were in many ways strengthened and wealthier, yes. but also, um, disempowered as well. And I think similarly we can see that in Dutch East, East Indies too where uh, in some ways the the Dutch, you know, bought the cooperation and paid pensions to royal families but in fact gave them very little power. So they're nothing like their, <laughs> their earlier selves, I suspect. But anyway, look, I want to, yeah, talking about this question about the um, viewing societies in Asia from the perspective of their monarchies, I think that's really interesting. And and I'm thankful to Dennis for bringing this to the fore because I think we can even push this a bit further. You know, I think we can really understand contemporary political developments not only by looking at constitutional monarchies, but maybe if we extend this Mm -hmm. to the role of hereditary rulers or the status of hereditary rulers in many countries. And this sort of expands our lens, if you like. So, you know, taking the example of Indonesia, which, of course, is strictly a republic, but nevertheless, over the last 20, 25 years, we've seen a resurgence yes. in reinstatement of princely titles, the renovation of palaces, the bestowal of honorary noble titles, um, now, to be clear, a lot of this has been motivated by the erstwhile traditional rulers themselves trying to, you know, increase their own status, and they very much remain pretenders in that they're outside the formal political structures, with the exception here of the Sultan of Yogyakarta, who holds the office of yes. governor on a an hereditary basis, even though it's normally an elected... Office, but we can talk about that later. But for most other traditional rulers, they either sided with the Dutch and then lost their position as a result of the war, being on the losing side, or simply lost their hereditary status with the transition to the Republic. And it should be noticed there was very little public outcry to this. So it seemed like there was quite a bit of popular support for moving on from... And I think that has something to say to... There's a comment there to what you were saying, Kauri, about how they weren't necessarily seen as popularly supporting people but often seen as siding with the colonisers. Yes. But then, you know, what's happened in the last two decades or so? You know, um, is it just a sense of nostalgia or is there something else going on here? And this is where I think Dennis, uh, you know, encourages us to ask interesting questions. Now, you know, there are two things I'd say here. Uh, firstly, I say that observers have of Indonesia have noted how this sort of resurgence and interest in hereditary titles is very much part of that serious political game of decentralization and regional autonomy. Mm-hmm. So, in this context, the recognition and the quasi-restoration of formal noble houses has great symbolic power in relation to claims of autonomy and the standing of local cultures. And, you know, local hereditary rulers are therefore useful for political opportunists or may even be the incumbents of these titles themselves who desire to want to redraw regional boundaries or Mm -hmm. make power manoeuvres within, you know, this sort of political class. But I think we need to also look a bit further because I think it's not just a sort of a, a game amongst political opportunists, you know, There's a widespread general public out there, too, that's also been somewhat involved in this resurgence and this interest. And I think looking at that also shows us something about political developments in contemporary Indonesia, and in particular, a widespread cynicism and a loss of faith in Indonesia's democratic processes and existing political structures. Now, I don't think this disillusionment is strong enough to call for the reinduction of hereditary rulers or anything like that, but I nevertheless think that this disenchantment is noteworthy and something that we can see by looking at this prism, through this prism of monarchy, into a contemporary republic.
1: And, of course, like, it's, glo- it's global, isn't it, because, in, in, you know, one can see similar moves um, in Russia. The great interest, resurgence of interest in the Romanovs. You can, and the oddest case that I came across writing this book that most Australians are quite unaware of is that Brazil, which actually was an empire for most of the 19th century, still has an active monarchist movement. Who would have known?
0: (laughs) It is, it's fascinating. Um, And I've just got a follow up for you, uh, Wendy, about the going back to the popular support. Conundrum. I mean, and 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 this kind of different the, the the dichotomy between mass and elite politics. I mean, for some monarchies, endurance may be about popular support. For others, it might be the value that the monarchy provides to a ruling elite. It seems mm-hmm. like it's quite complex uh, in a lot of these cases. So, uh, going back to the central notion in Dennis's book, or the, the 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 central puzzle, I guess, around whether or not monarchy is a bulwark against populism in Asia what's your view
3: (laughs) well this is of course the million dollar question (laughs) and one very difficult to answer precisely because of the diversity Mm. that you know we've noted earlier you know but I ask myself would a constitutional monarch be able to reign in the excesses of a President Duterte for example no (laughs) it's too speculative But I'm thinking maybe about Malaysia, which is a constitutional monarchy, as we've noted. um, But it's also had its share of illiberal and undemocratic prime ministers as well. And at least one who was very populist and popular. And I'm thinking here of Mahathir Mohammed during his heyday, where he garnered very strong and at times unquestioning loyalty Mm -hmm. from many Malaysians. And this was despite his involvement in money politics, the erosion of the independence of the judiciary, the media, the security apparatus. You know, he also managed to make constitutional changes that limited the power of the monarchy too. So it's interesting that in the recent years, since at least 2008, when the sort of the pro-democracy, reformasi movement had some success in Malaysia, that there have been pro-democratic Malaysians who have appealed to the king yes. to take on more executive powers. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I do think that's quite interesting. You know, yeah. They want them to rid them of an unpopular prime minister or to reconvene parliament or to stand as the last line of defence mm-hmm. against unconstitutional behaviour. And as Den- Dennis was saying you know, earlier this year in this mess of Malaysian politics, asking the king to take on rights and exercise power that he doesn't actually have. Um, Yeah, but could... In all of this, could all of this, oh, just by the way, um, if you want to read some recent comments on constitutional monarchy, Malaysia Today, which is an online um, pro-democracy magazine that you can just access through the internet, it's very easy to look at, they've had a commentary the last year on the um, what's the role of the agung, of the king. And it's really interesting to see that there is popular support for a king who is in some sense a constitutional head of state but has to be sort of this personification of constitutionalism, not the personification of sovereignty. So people want to sort of keep a sense of a a constitutional monarchy. These are pro-democrats. These are people very critical of the current government. They want a constitutional monarchy. But as that sort of um, guardian of last resort, if you like, to the core principles of the constitution. Yeah, but anyway, just to return to that question about monarchy and populism, I really don't think that if we take the case of Malaysia, and I suspect in other constitutional monarchies as well, that a Malaysian king would be any match for a popular autocratic populist. You know, so people are appealing to the king now because they're unhappy with the situation and the the situation in Malaysia is very contested and there's no clear winner. But, you know, when Mahathir was reigning supreme, there was nobody, no king at all that could have contested and no king that successfully contested the diminishing of rural powers. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that in Malaysia. Firstly, the... the, um, the, the constitution and this old, this really odd system of rotating kings is very new historically. It's basically the outcome of a compromise between the British colonial power and Malay nationalists. So, you know, it's not as if you can look at the system now and say, ah, oh, you know, it's a legacy of our feudal times. It somehow <laughs> represents the spirit of the nation. Um, this whole system of every five years changing the king also, I think, um, destabilizes the system. It's very hard for people to attach themselves to the person of the monarchy. You know, probably if you ask some Malaysians, they wouldn't even know which was which of the sultans was the monarch at the moment. Um, and then again, you know, these hereditary rulers Uh, represent only nine states of Malaysia. There are 13 states of Malaysia, and some of them do not at all have a history of a sort of a Malay Muslim sultan. And I'm thinking here particularly of East Malaysia, of the states of Sabah and Sarawak. So for many Malaysians, this idea of a Malay Muslim sultan doesn't have any resonance resonance at all. And I think that um, these are some of the reasons why, you know, there's no way in which even a popular king could possibly, you know, combat successfully the the worst excesses of a popular autocrat in Malaysia.
0: That's a really interesting uh, set of points you make there, Wendy, and I wanted to get Dennis's um, sort of opinion on on those points. And I wonder also, Dennis, about what role trust plays uh, in the relationship between the political system and political leaders and the monarchy.
1: Well, look, if we just go to the specific example Wendy's using, which is Dr Mahathir at his heyday, I suspect that everything Wendy says is correct, but if we were to imagine Dr Mahathir as president with no ceremonial state at all, would he actually have had even greater sway? And my sense is, my feeling is probably yes um, I want to make clear, I talk about this as a set of questions. I don't have a strong view. I mean, my my personal sense is that in the end, uh, there are much bigger underlying factors that will account for whether or not populist leaders come to the fore. But I think the idea that one should separate the ceremonial from the effective head of government, which is the basis of constitutional monarchy and, of course, of a whole lot of uh, other types of presidential systems, seems to me a very important one. And on balance, my hunch is that a President Mahathir would have been even more draconian than a Prime Minister Mahathir.
0: Interesting. Now, we've got some uh, really good questions in yeah. the Q&A. Uh, i am you can see them Dennis. I encourage you to keep putting your questions in but I might start with a question that we have on development for Dennis. Uh, so we've talked about politics and we've talked about the relationship between monarchy and and sort of systems of government as well as leadership but is there a relationship between uh, monarchy and the development status of particular countries?
1: I would have thought not. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I can't quite see what, where that correlation is. Um, again, I think it's, we've got to be very careful about talking about things coinciding and things causing, because they are rather different. Um, as Kari was pointing out, I mean, Japan is, after all, by far the richest and most developed Asian country, or has traditionally been anyway for the last 30, 40 years. um, I don't think that's because the emperor is there. So I think we have to be very careful. And I don't see any clear correlation between the development status of a country. The one place where it might, that may be the case, is. I think if I were an apologist for the Thai monarchy, I would argue that the interest that the previous king took in rural and regional development was significant. Um, And certainly there are a whole lot of projects in Thailand that were probably fostered and supported by royal patronage. Um, My understanding is that the royal family did a lot better out of those projects than the peasants they were allegedly trying to support.
0: Uh, Kauri, I wouldn't mind asking you, I mean, one of your areas of expertise is nationalism, uh, uh, particularly in in northeast Asia. So what role uh, do you see monarchy playing in supporting nationalism, which is, you know, kind of having a bit of a resurgence in in that part of the world?
2: Yeah, I think um, the imperial family is very cautious not to be seen as supporting this resurgence of nationalism, uh, precisely because of the, the pre-war history. So they, they, yes, I think they are aware and then certainly in you know, a resurgence of nationalism, but they don't get involved into this.
0: So, is there a reluctance i guess but the, the one of the particular disputes in that context are the historical disputes between Japan and South Korea. Is there a sense in which the continuation of the the emperor or the imperial line has any kind of role to play in the continuation of those uh, historic uh, disputes over history
2: ah, well there are some leftist historians to argue like that. Um, also, the continuation of the the uh, legacy of the outcast class discrimination that still exists socially, but not not legally. Uh, some uh, some academics attribute that to the continuation of the imperial system, which supported this institutionalized hereditary class system, which included outcast. So there are definitely that views, and you can see this publication if you go to uh, one corner of the bookshop, but at the same time, and another corner of the bookshop, uh, more right-wing type of books. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't don't talk about that at all. So I guess you know, what I would say is that in terms of the emperor nationalism, uh, war crime, the relationship with uh, PRC and South Korea, is that there's a diverse views there. Mm-hmm. And there are uh, there's a lot of discussions about it, and it's quite interesting to see the. Well, I, w- I didn't find it interesting. I took it for granted. But when I went to uh, uh, when I took my colleague from PRC to a bookshop because he was interested in this, how Japanese publications mm-hmm. uh, uh, views about the war responsibility to East Asia. Uh, he was quite amazed the variety of views. Mm, yeah.
0: mm, that's really interesting. Uh, we've got a question in the Q and A. I'm going to direct it to Wendy. Uh, it's about the Malaysia case, and the question is whether people using the sultans, uh, whether they're using the sultans as symbols of racial
3: superiority. Mm. Um. I certainly think that there's very strong entwinement between uh, sort of Malay nationalist politics and the sultans. Uh, You know, it's um, racial superiority. I I wouldn't like to to generalise too much on that. Um, uh, There's many sultans who probably would tell you that they're not racially pure Malays have got quite a lot of other, you know, they might not advertise it too much, but at least personally and in private conversation they would talk about that. So I don't necessarily think that they're talking about a purist, well, as I say, I don't really want to talk about it because I don't feel like I'm confident, knowledgeable enough. But certainly um, they are used and they situate themselves as symbols of malay nationalism which definitely plays into a very racialized stream of malay nationalist politics without a doubt Um, they think i think they could play a broader role in trying to sort of be um, the kings or the sultans for all malays and for all malaysians sorry but they probably feel in some sense a little bit constricted because of their very strong association with islam too we have a, we
0: have a question in the Q and A that's just cropped up about um, female monarchs, and it, and it is about Japan. But while we're with you, Wendy, I'm wondering about the gender dynamics of monarchs in Asia, and whether there's um, you know whether it's a sort of thing that only men can inherit the the the, the sort of the throne, or uh, whether you've got any comments about that particular issue.
3: They um.
1: There don't
3: don't seem to be many, although in Aceh
1: there
3: are a couple of queens and very impressive queens in the very early modern period um, at about the same time as, you know, uh, colonialism was coming into the region, uh, who were very, um, um, yeah, very highly regarded. But I think um, in the part of the world that I'm more familiar with it's difficult for women to hold that, you know, top position because women in certain interpretations of Islam, women can't have authority over men um, in political systems.
1: Now, Wendy, I thought you were going to mention the situation in Jogjakarta, where my understanding is the current Sultan of Jakarta has actually named his daughter oh, as... Yeah. Uh, which has caused quite some consternation among other members of the royal family who think they should be getting the job.
3: <laughs> Good point. No, I've, I've overlooked that, yes, indeed, yeah. <laughs> but,
0: Dennis, maybe you want to um, also come in on the question about uh, gender and constitutional monarchies, even if it's uh, broader than Asia, but also um, there is a question here from one of our um, Doing Politics students. Hi, Catherine. Um <laughs> Great to have you here. Great to see you asking questions. And it's about the current challenges that monarch, uh, monarchies face in Asia.
1: Oh, well, I think one would have to ask it in terms of each specific country. I mean, just going back to the gender question, um, I think that in the contemporary situation, there, there is no current or I think no heir to the throne who is not male. I'm not sure, Kaori, can tell me if Japan have now changed the rules in the way that the most European countries have changed the rules?
2: No, they haven't changed. It has been discussed, they I haven't changed. but it not changed. But it is one of the three controversial topics.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but in terms of the challenges, um, look, to me, the really interesting question is, can a monarch... Do what very few monarchs in history have done, namely preside over the development of a more democratic system while retaining their position. Um, and it's hard to find many examples. And the great example in contemporary uh, history is, I think, Juan Carlos in Spain, uh, who did play a really major role in the transition to democracy after Franco. Unfortunately, stayed on the throne far too long, uh, became very corrupt and is now living in exile in the United Arab Emirates. So even that may be <laughs> not a great model. Um, but I think that is the challenge for monarchs. Um, and as I sort of suggested before, were the current king of Thailand a very different sort of person, one could hope that he would be able to preside over shifts in the Thai political system, but I think one would have to be extremely optimistic to see that happening.
0: I wonder, in in writing the book, Dennis, whether you spent a lot of time thinking about social movements around, you know, pro monarchy or pro republican. I mean, it's clearly, it's been an issue in Australian politics, uh, and there seems to be a, a sense in which it often falls into kind of ideological camps around uh, whether we should remain a part of the or under the the sort of British head of state. Uh, in Asia, was there a sense in which there were strong debates? Um, or social movements that had developed around the monarchy?
1: Look, I think the situation we have is, of course, a very odd and ridiculous. We have a Clayton's monarchy, uh, which we share with a number of other countries, Um, and no country in Asia is silly enough to have as their head of state somebody living on the other side of the world who rarely visits, Um, but... I'm not aware of any significant Republican movements in Asia. And the last Asian monarchy that fell was Nepal, uh, where a relative of the king went mad and shot large numbers of the royal family, which effectively helped the end of monarchy in Nepal. Other than that, um, I don't see, I can't think of any cases in contemporary Asia where there is a significant push to get rid of the monarchy. In the chat and the questions, I noticed somebody has raised the issue of Afghanistan. It's a really interesting question, and I think I sent a message to that person already saying how much I regret not having thought more about Afghanistan when I was writing the book, because Afghanistan did actually have, um, what, probably 40 years ago, did look as if it was moving towards, a constitutional monarchy, that is, before the Taliban first took power. And there may well be a very strong case to, to say that had that monarchy survived, Afghanistan would be a much happier country than it is today. But, of course, we're now in the realm of um, hypotheticals, and it's a rather sad one, I think, in the case of Afghanistan.
0: Mm. Yes, indeed. Uh, I might pose the next question to you, Carrie. It is from our good friend of La Trobe Asia and all of us on the panel, Emerald King. Uh, This is a follow-up question about the Japanese imperial family. Uh, Wondering uh, whether you can comment on the reportage on Princess Mako and the Anglophone notion that she is choosing to marry out of the imperial family when there is no eligible male for her to marry um, except for her younger brother. Is this something to do with the presumption that all royal families work as the, in the same ways as the European and the British systems?
2: Mm. Well, um, Marco, the princess, princesses have no choice but to marry commoner because, as you explained, that there is no male prince that mm. are available because the imperial family size went down so drastically after after the war. Um, the, but what was the What was the last question? The, the, the question
0: was about whether there's a presumption that all royal families work the same way as the European and British systems. Uh, presumably there's a fair bit of sort of marrying within the noble line historically in Britain, which I think is, you know, different in Japan. Is, yeah, is there
2: it was the case until the end of the war. The, the nobles married among themselves, and some of them married um, imperial family of South Korea and also the uh, Manchu Ko, Manchu Ko's crown prince's brother. So it did happen, but now there's simply uh, no option. I don't, I don't know any uh, uh, imperial family members who married uh, non-Asian quote unquote, foreigner. The Princess Mako is marrying a Japanese man who's got a a law degree in America and she's going to live in America. I am not sure some of you might be, might be aware of this quote unquote scandal that is revolving around this her. Uh, and then I think this scandal that there is a question about the suitableness about this uh, young man uh, it's to do with uh, his mother's financial issues with her ex-fiancé so okay so this is the reason why there is this uh, uh, some people are against this marriage so it depends on what level of moral probity can people expect from the royal family member and i think that the, the extent is the extent is different amongst the people, different age background, social class background and so on. I feel very sorry for her.
0: Indeed, indeed. Thank you, Carrie. Uh, Dennis, we have a question here about Myanmar. Um, The monarchy was deposed by the British since colonialism. Burmese kings have been venerated by successive regimes to the extent that three massive statues of ancient kings stand in the new capital. Do you think that the current Myanmar nationalism includes a nostalgia for monarchical values?
1: I... I saw that question and I thought I I just don't know enough to be sure, Um, although I'm certainly aware of the way in which uh, in Myanmar as in many other countries, um, very different regimes will refer back to the great traditions of their monarchies. Um, so I would assume the answer is yes, and I think um, the points that Wendy was making about the way in which uh, there's a revival in Indonesia of an interest in traditional royal families, um, that seems to be fairly universal. Uh, we, of course, live in a country that doesn't have its own royal family, so we have to make do with secondhand gossip through the Women's Weekly.
0: <laughs> Did you want to add anything here, Wendy? Oh. I think you're on mute, sorry.
3: (laughs) Uh, Not really. I just also I wanted to pick up on one of the other comments, though, that's in the comment box, and that was about um, the the king of Bhutan trekking through the Himalayas. And it seems to me that, um, you know, in some of our more recent comments, one of the issues that's coming to the fore is that we actually don't get a lot of media stories about monarchies. So we are therefore often trading on, you know, parallels, what we think might be appropriate that we're borrowing from other models Mm -hmm. or having a very, you know, colonial view rather than exploring um, some of those complexities. So thank you for that comment, whoever commented. Because I think that's really interesting that the King of Bhutan who, you know, is trekking To investigate the situation. It's a very hands-on view of the monarch, which is quite different. I can't imagine the the Agung of Malaysia trekking anywhere, (laughs) let alone (laughs) to come into close contact with um, people who may have COVID. And it brings back again the point that you made about the Japanese Crown Prince uh, Mm -hmm. standing at an AIDS conference, you know, publicly with the person who had AIDS. To show some sort of solidarity and support.
1: Yes. Um, yes. Well, yes. thank
0: you for addressing that question. And, Dennis, did you want to comment on that question as well?
1: No, I, 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 I like that. I had to go back. I'm sorry. I was looking at the comments, but for the comment, in fact, all the comments are so interesting that mm. for us to follow the conversation because we are reading these really fascinating <laughs> yeah. responses that are coming in. Well. Um,
0: I think, Dennis, it's a sign that people are really engaged with the with the comments, and so we've got a fantastic audience here who are mm. writing lots of questions, and I'm not going to probably be able to get to all of them, but I do have one here on Cambodia, which we haven't talked much about, but it is a case study in your yeah. book, and you mentioned uh, Hun Sen's puppet, so wondering about how useful um, the, the king is in legitimising uh, the Cambodian uh, Communist Party as it has become more more authoritarian?
1: Well, sadly, I think he's enormously useful for them. Um, I, I, the little I know about the current Cambodian king, I feel great sympathy for him. And The guy is essentially, as far as I can tell, locked away in the palace, uh, very much produced um, on the whims of the Hun Sen regime and... Um, he suffers, of course, enormously from being the son of Prince Sihanouk, who in his time managed to be a king, a prime minister, and an emblem, I guess, of Cambodian nationalism. Um, I can't really add more. I think that um, this is a case where, it, if if I were to to venture a prediction on which of all the monarchies we've talked about is least likely to survive, I would guess it would be the Cambodian. And I say that because I think the king is now so implicated in the Hun Sen regime that were that regime to collapse, uh, it's quite likely the monarchy might go with it. Uh, You know, having said that, I'm not suggesting that uh, there is an imminent likelihood of of the Cambodian government collapsing. I think that... it's probably extremely well um, fortified by both internal and external forces.
0: Hun Sen has been in power for nearly as long as I've been alive, so I think that's possibly a good bet, Dennis. (laughs) 1985, that's a long time. Uh, But, Wendy, I might uh, pose this question to you. It goes back to Malaysian hereditary rulers uh, being heads of Islam in their respective jurisdiction, which gives them a source of authority beyond that of state and federal governments. Uh, Have you taken this into consideration in assessing Malaysian monarchy?
3: Yes, that's for sure, and that was always one of their traditional sort of roles right back during British colonialism too, where they were to be responsible for all matters Mm -hmm. pertaining to Islam. Um, I would say, though, and I'm afraid I haven't recently looked at this, but I would say that over the past, um, I don't know, 20, 30 years, some of that power has been taken from them. There have been increasing moves Uh, for the federal government to exert influence over the um, Islamic courts, for example, the Sharia courts, uh, in terms of Islamic matters, things like compulsory religious classes before couples can get married. So I think that while they still maintain that, some of their um, power there has actually been um, diminished by federal manoeuvres.
0: Thank you. Now, I'm afraid that we are running out of time. We've only got a couple of minutes left, so I'm not going to be able to get to some of the other questions, but it's so great to see how engaged people are with this topic. I think it's a true testament to your book, Dennis, and the research that you've been doing on constitutional monarchies, but I can't let you go without asking, do you have a favourite monarchy?
1: A <laughs> favourite monarchy? Oh, you know, I could answer the... I. When I was writing the book, I actually had this fantasy that I would start a competition to name the sleaziest royal alive. Um, I don't think I thought of the opposite, which is, Beck. you're asking me, do I have a favourite? Um, look, I, I guess I have a soft spot for the Queen of Denmark, uh, Queen Margareta. Um, Although I think that one of one of the great tricks the Scandinavian monarchs are very good at is persuading people that somehow they're just like the rest of us. You know, they go on their books to go shopping. Um, if you start looking into it, it's actually interesting. The Norwegian royals, for example, cost the Norwegian taxpayer more than do the Brits, which... I think anything any of us would have expected, um, but no, I don't. I haven't met. You know, I have only in my life met one genuine royal. I did once meet. In fact, I time with uh, the Queen of Bhutan, who at that stage was the third wife of the king, who had married four sisters. Um, this presumably was a very convenient way of ensuring um, that you keep the, keep the business in the family. And I did have to look after the third wife for a period when she was in Melbourne for a regional AIDS conference. Um, But that's my sole encounter so far with royalty, and on that basis I don't think I want to pick a favourite.
0: Okay, fair enough. <laughs> That's a good answer. Uh, but I would like to uh, thank our panellists, uh, Wendy Cowdy and particularly Dennis for writing uh, this book. I highly recommend that you get a copy of it. Uh, it's a it's an excellent read. Uh, and thank you to our audience for watching this La Trove Asia event. This webinar has been recorded. Uh, if you've registered for the event, you'll be emailed the appropriate links when they're ready. Uh, and our next scheduled Latrobe Asia webinar takes us in a slightly different direction. We'll be talking about the AUKUS deal, which I'm sure Dennis could talk a lot about as well. Uh, <laughs> The Orcas Deal Regional Security in Indo-Pacific uh, is the name of that event, and we'll be hosting that on the 27th of October uh, at 5.30pm AEDT. But in the meantime, please follow us on Twitter at Latrobe Asia or join our mailing list to find more
2: details for online events and Latrobe Asia publications. Thank you again.